Well, hello and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. What a joy it is to be back. So uh, we've got a very fine pod for you lined up today, Andrew Hunter-Murray talking about the last day. But we haven't done correspondence We haven't, which is a disgrace, frankly. Um, so thanks for getting in touch. And if you get in touch, you can email the show, which is booksoftheyear at yahoo.com, and you yes. can tweet us at Books of the Year. Correct. Uh, good plug for Books of the Year on uh, Radio Leary. That'll That'll be Dermot, then. That will be Dermot, yeah, yeah. On Radio 2 this morning, possibly the first mention of Simon Mayo since his departure. You do become persona really? non grata. Does nobody mention your name now? You have to be... Simon Mayo, the one that can't be named from, you know, that show he did. Yes. So, uh, well, thank you very much, SJL, yeah. uh, for sending that in. I missed, you know, I missed it, obviously, but... Um, that's nice to know that they mentioned it. It is, it is. I think yes. they used, it was a mystery voice, and they used a little bit of our Lee Child. Oh, did they? Oh, Chad. right. Well, yeah. Lee Child. We were talking about him in the last podcast, weren't we? Um, Samaya Khan. This is um, producer Ben coming in and grabbing some yes, paper for there some there you go, a bit of uh, Gonzo uh, production there. Uh, Samaya Khan says, I love listening to these guys' podcast. Do, yes. It's so relaxing and peaceful. Plus, you get to explore books and add them to your recommendation list. Yes, my list is huge. Hashtag geek. Now, Jonathan Ross um, tweeted, this is a while back, so if you're planning on watching Masked Singer UK tonight, uh, then I'm very confident you will not guess the identity of the character that gets unmasked. Still not 100% sure why they did it. To which Colin Scott replied to Jonathan, uh, I did guess Alan Johnson entirely because of the Simon Mayo and Books of the Year podcast. Yes, indeed. And so, no, I hadn't watched any of Masked Singer, but he basically, Alan Johnson appeared all over my timeline on social media. And yes, if you'd read his book or indeed listened to that podcast, you'd know that he did a podcast uh, yeah. with Kermode, and you can still yeah. well, Professor Mark Kermode, and you can still obviously download that from where you yes. got where you got this, and it's very and very entertaining. Yes, it I'm is. I'm not quite sure why Alan Johnson agreed to appear on the show. <laughs> well, no, but it was, it was a really good book as well, and uh, good to see that the Michael Lewis episode we did made it into the Times. Really, uh, the British do memoirs best, says the Moneyball author Michael Lewis, uh, when asked for his favourite autobiography on the Books of the Year podcast. Podcast. You live in a constant state of anxiety about what other people think of you. You're always aware of every point of attack. His only exception to this rule is the royal family. Uh, then goes on to talk about Prince Andrew. Uh, Producer so, yes. Ben's come in again. What he are you has. coming in for? Come on through, Andrew. Hey. Oh, you come, Andrew. Andrew's coming in. Andrew Hunter Murray. Hi, Hello, Andrew. Hi. We're just doing some correspondence Goodness section. Me, you're cold. Uh, you uh, yeah. Uh, Patricia Johnson says, Simon Matt, I would like to suggest you interview Tom Hanks. On your excellent Sorry. podcast, I've just finished uh, his collection of short stories, Uncommon Type. I had to force myself to turn off his voice in my head, and that allowed the characters to shine through. It would be wonderful to hear him discuss the book with you both. Uh, Patricia Johnson in Well, Bournemouth. I know from your other podcast yes. that you do... Uh, with your other family, uh, Tom Hanks yes. is a bit. You're a big fan of his. So I have am. you read this? Yeah, this is the Wittertainment podcast yes. from Five Live, and he's my fa- he's my favourite guest. Mm. So if he was able to come in and talk about his book, then I'm sure that's fine. Except Has he written he... before? He's done other stuff, hasn't he? Hasn't he done I another think, book? Oh, I think it's his only book, as far is as it? I know. Right. It's the kind of thing producers should provide. Producer us with. Ben, any Has any Tom thoughts Hanks on that? Any books apart from Uncommon Type? No idea. No <clears> idea. No, no. Andrew, Andrew Hunter Murray is saying no. So that's a big no. It's you can't bet. talk. Oh, it's great. Okay. Well, grand. <laughs> I don't think he has. Well, it's no, definitely his first fictional 
okay. outing, I reckon. Uh, Chris Hughes in Manchester felt like I had to say how much I agree with you, Simon, in selecting The Silent Patient by Alex Michaelides as one of your books of the year for last year. This was a compelling read combining elements of Alfred Hitchcock, Agatha Christie and even Ingmar Bergman uh, in Persona, a superb psychological thriller. I know there will be a movie which I hope doesn't take too many liberties with Alex's spellbinding story. Why? What are you saying well, about the movie? Well, let me tell you that when you learn about that subject, you are going to go, you have got to be kidding me. What, the subject of the book? No, not the subject of the book. The, the subject, subject of the, the movie? The people who were involved with the movie. Oh, really? Yes. What are we saying? What are we saying? Well, I'm going to... No, go on. Okay, I'm going to write this down. Okay. But obviously, you can't say anything. Okay. And I'm not even going to let Andrew see what I'm right. writing down. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Looking forward to this. Starring Lawrence Fox. Okay. Oh, right. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, well, in which case, it's going to be an amazing movie then. Yes, but I can't say anything about oh, it. Oh, right. I see. Right. Okay. Yeah. This is surely, Chris continues, an example of what Books of the Year is all about. As well as celebrating writers we know and love, your interviews influence us to acquaint ourselves with the work of new authors or those we are aware of but have never got round to reading. Looking forward to many great podcasts, Chris Hughes in Manchester. This, these, these, these emails always remind me of that. Not the nine o'clock news. If you want to, if you want to write to points of view praising the BBC to the skies, <laughs> yes. please contact Barry Took. Well, and and speaking of uh, of uh, of new writers. Andrew Hunter Murray is kind of a new. Are you a new? Do we count you as a new writer? I think so. <clears throat> I think everything non-fictional before now gets erased from ah. the slate. And yeah, first first novel, which is the biggie. Yes, that's right. And the book is called uh, The Last Day. Yeah. Andrew Hunter Murray, which is such a great name for an author. I'm very good. Fiddling yeah, yeah, around yeah. with just two names, <laughs> and you've got three. Is that like your proper name? It's it's my actual name. Yeah, I was just Andrew Murray. Uh, you know, I just went by Andrew Murray. Went by. I was a child. But then uh, this tennis player started doing rather well, and I was Andy Murray until then. But I grew up in Wimbledon, so okay, I heard pretty much all the jokes, and then I suddenly thought, oh, I've got this middle name that might just. Come in handy. I so. see. So, so if you, so who are you then? If you're Michael, Michael, who? Michael so, was, and middle name. Middle name is Michael. So my first name oh. is Matt. Oh, I know that. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> who are you? So yeah, but Matt you, Michael Williams. Yeah. That, but now that is a. Great, I don't think it's a very good name. What about Matthew, are you Matthew? Yeah, I am. Matthew, Matthew Michael yeah. Williams. That scans very nicely. That because really feels good for your novel. Yeah. For my novel, yes, Matthew might happen because yeah. I've got two. Because I'm Andrew Hicks. Andrew Hicks. Yes, so Simon Andrew Hicks may always like. Pleh. Don't think so. Hicks as a yes, it's my mother's maiden name. Before oh right, go, I see. What <laughs> we had a teacher at school who went through all of our full names. He just found the list of them and went through them, say, seeing how they would sound in court if read out. Because he, you know, Norman Stanley Fletcher, the beginning ah, of porridge, yeah, yeah, is yeah, a yeah. fabulous. You know, it's a triple. What is it? I can't remember. Triple name? Dactyl spot, whatever. The, like, Norman Stanley. It scans beautifully in court. And Andrew Hunter Murray, I think, scans the same. So so you might end up in court? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, life of crime awaits. If, we'll see how the book goes first. Yes. But, uh, yeah. So <clears throat> fans of Andrew Hunter Murray or Andy Murray will know you from uh, No Such Thing as a Fish. That's right. Because uh, you, you're part of that team. Yeah. Uh, that's quite a successful podcast. It's not bad, is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, a couple Download of downloads. Yeah. Uh, QR. Are you an elf? Are you officially an elf? Yes. Once oh. an elf, always an elf. So we we write the we research rather the facts behind the shows, and then we you know we send them all on to Sandy, and uh, we turn them into scripts that way. But 
Only Sandy sees them, obviously. So. Child, child three, as in my child three, says to say hi. By the way, yeah, oh, I say hi back. Yeah, yeah. There you go. He's actually in the new book. He's in the new book. Yeah, there's a oh, picture yeah. of him being attacked by birds. Anyway, what? So it's a long story. Really? Anyway, he's very, he's very he's proud. He's been attacked by birds. We've been the... going for a long time. I can tell the PR's getting tricky. <laughs> have they, have they even, even mentioned the book? Mentioned the subject of the book. Anyway, uh, Matthew Michael Williams, describe yes. the yes. cover, please. Okay, so, well, given the subject matter of the book, the cover is going to make a lot of sense because basically it's dominated by two colours. We're, we're, we're looking at orange and it's sort of orange flame. So it's almost as if they've taken a picture right on the edge of the sun uh, and then you've got the black expanse of space on the on the right-hand side of the book and then the last day picked out in black and orange. Andrew Hunter-Murray at the top. A world half in darkness, a secret she must bring to light and then something very nice written by Harlan Coben saying you will enjoy this book. A stunningly original thriller. That's what he says. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So, Andrew, what on earth has happened? Well, the book is set a few decades from now. It's in our world, but due to a catastrophe in the heavens, the Earth's rotation has ground to a halt, slowly, over a period of about ten years. It's first noticed one day, GPS goes haywire, and slowly it's worked out that this is what is happening. There's something passing by in the sky. Uh, it's called a uh, hypervelocity star. They're real things. And um, the book takes place about 40 years after that process starts. So in the when we begin the novel, the Earth's rotation has ground to a halt 30 years ago. Half faces inwards towards the sun, half faces outwards towards the cold, frozen universe. Obviously, life has changed a great deal. The sunlit side is the only one where life survives. And even then, only in a kind of narrow ring, you know, where the sun is not directly above you, you know, in the... In the centre of that zone, it's scorchingly hot, meltingly hot. You know, nothing survives there. It's just ash. There is this ring where you can still raise crops, still survive. You know, the weather is tolerable. Fortunately for the plot, Britain happens to be in that oh, ring. What a, what a lucky escape! I know, so, luck so, of the British. So, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us the um, that the area of the, mm. the globe which is okay. So. The very far edge, you've got the very far edge of uh, the USA, the eastern seaboard, is, you know, almost just about still lit. Um, Britain's obviously on the kind of northern side of that. The the hottest zone is roughly where the Middle East and North Africa are today. And then, you know, so some a lot of Europe is kind of still in that habitable zone, stretching across Scandinavia, the edge of Russia, and then um, the south of Africa too. How did you decide... Or was it kind of obvious once you decided that Britain was going to be okay? Was it kind of did did the geography of this and the <laughs> physics of it all become obvious? I've got a globe, and I spent a lot of time with the globe working out, you know, seasonal stuff. And yeah, I was a bit of a nerd about it actually. But um, I did that the idea for the book came to me in this kind of single moment of I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, I just saw the Earth hanging there in space, divided in two. And the main question wasn't plot related. It wasn't about what would happen here? It was just what would happen to the planet in the event of that. Which is, which is very interesting. And, and tell me if you don't feel as you, though you can go down this path uh, particularly, but it does come up quite early in the book. It does, you do explain what happened. Yeah. You know, so if people are thinking, well, how on earth would the, would the earth stop spinning? Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I had the idea before knowing whether it was even slightly feasible and obviously it's a work of fiction so I've definitely taken quite a lot of liberties but I do happen to have a friend who's a, an astrophysicist and I wrote to her and said look I've had this idea 
does this ever happen? And over what time scale and all this? She went away and asked all her colleagues. And um, she sent back this amazing, it was a buffet of options. You know, she said, well, you could do it like this or you could do it like this. And so, you know, uh, one of the options she suggested was this idea of a hypervelocity star. And they're real things. They're incredibly dense. You know, they have the mass of several suns no, in a space no bigger than the Earth. And some of them are completely free of a solar system, a galaxy, anything like that. They are just barreling through space. We've only seen about 20 in total. And if one barreled past the way you outline it? Who knows? I've decided it would precisely stop the Earth's rotation. You know, so it's obviously the odds of that happening are so slim. They're so infinitesimally slim. The odds of it happening in a way that would mean even some life survived, you know, are negligible. But uh, again, a bit of dramatic license intervened. Uh, and just before Matt, you you mentioned when you do the acknowledgements at, uh, at the end, you you sort of half apologise to all your friends, family, and everyone at QI because you've been clearly <laughs> boring them with the idea of this book. Uh, for a while. So how long has this been rattling around in your head? Oh, a few years now. I thought of it in the end of 2016. And I think if someone tells you when you have an idea, you know this is going to dominate the next four, five years of your life, you'd probably be a bit scared off it. But I didn't know that at the time. I just sort of thought, what would happen? What would happen to politics? What happens to relationships between countries as they start falling apart, you know? So I just started writing and then followed the thread. I remember when we used to do these um, book club chats on, on the radio, there was a standing joke we had on the show, which was, if you ask this question, mm. it's always the question you ask when you've got nothing else to ask about the book. However, for <laughs> this book, I am going to have to ask this question because I think, it's, I think it's absolutely central to it, and that is mm. about the research that will have gone into this. Yeah. Because it's not just about how it happens mm. that the Earth stops rotating. But what's perhaps more interesting is the impact that has had. Now, obviously, you've already mentioned right at the sort of the centre uh, of the of the of the sun's glare, it's going to be uh, far too hot, and we'd all get that. And we've got this sort of Goldilocks zone, as you call it, where Britain and other parts of the globe are. But what other impacts are there? And, and you talk about this in the book, but I'm, I'm guessing because I know your background and I know that you will have wanted to research a lot about this. Yeah. All of those things you mentioned in the book, those are what would happen if the Earth stopped stopped rotating. I well, as far as I can tell, yes, I think a lot of them. And one of them, one of the main interests I have is in, is in that political thing we have at the moment—a world where it doesn't really matter where you are geographically in relation to each other. Geopolitics kind of gets around that. You know, Britain, one of Britain's closest allies is Australia. Well. Not really anymore, you know. Or India and Pakistan have a history of, you know, enormous tension between them. If you are in effectively the same position globally when something like this is happening, you will be shocked into a new assessment of the realities. And I think that's something that we will see happening around the world over the next few decades is as global warming carries on, you're going to see realignments based more on this than on the relationships we've previously known and felt comfortable with. So the book is kind of a, a sci-fi-ish attempt to tackle those kind of themes and those kind of uh, options that... So in other words, climate change, that's where you're sort of, that's sort of the, the end point there. Well, the, yeah, I mean, in this book, <clears> the climate <throat> has changed and a lot of people have had to move around to survive, whether it's from the dark side to the light or whether it's from the hottest zone in the middle outwards. You know, those those are all realities in this, in this world I've written. So it's uh, the end of the nation state, basically. 
Yeah, except that, of course, Britain has kind of survived intact by pulling up the drawbridge. You know, it's the end of the nation state for a lot of nations. So by virtue of being an island. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 did you squirrel away various facts when you, you know, in your day job at QI? Did you think, I'm that? There were a couple. There's a, <laughs> there was one which we covered on No Such Thing as a Fish um, years ago now, you know, and it's that there are people whose job is to lasso icebergs. So when icebergs are about to hit oil rigs, for example, they're drifting slowly towards oil rigs. There are firms who run satellite networks which observe that happening, say, OK, well, this is a problem because if you're if an iceberg hits your rig, that's going to be a, a large bill at the end of the day. So they send out a team with a boat and a rope. They literally... Literally dr- lasso. They literally lasso it. They drive around it with a rope... They tug it for a few hours, just enough to change its course so that it'll miss the rig. You don't need to reverse the direction or anything. And then they let it go. They rewild the iceberg. And so that's a real thing that happens. And I I phoned up someone who has that job and spoke to him about it and years ago before i thought of the book but the early uh, the early chapters yeah, of the happens book, very, it happens very yeah. on so, so you you must tell, introduce us to hopper the ocean scientist at the heart of this story yes tell us about her she is um as you say she's an ocean scientist she lives uh on a rig in the middle of the kind of freezing north atlantic you know she um lives there by choice she has kind of cut herself off from a country that she feels uncomfortable with. Britain is a, a much more uh, violent, authoritarian, decayed place than the, the country we know. Um, she has cut herself off from this place. She is a little, you know, chilled herself internally. And a lot of the process of the novel is her re-engaging with the world, you know, being being pulled back in initially against her will uh, when a couple of sinister goons from the government turn up and demand she comes back. And from that point onwards, she's kind of set on a journey of exploration. I'd never have known they were sinister goons from the way you <laughs> yes. describe them. They sound such charmers. I know, with their hound's tooth and everything, yeah. Can you, can you explain a little bit about what, what's happened to Britain? Maybe it's a way of illustrating the kind of lead-up to what you're describing here. So you said it's more authoritarian and, uh, and nasty. So what d- describe what's happened to Britain. Well, what, I, one of the things I'm interested in, or one of the things that authors I really love write about, is... Um, power, you know, and the decisions that are made out of necessity, the decisions that governments can persuade people are necessary. So Britain has taken a lot of what the government would describe as necessary, albeit ugly decisions. And that's something I wanted to let the reader kind of make up their own mind about. I think unpleasant choices are one of the key and most important things in any novel, not just for the characters who you're writing, but for institutions, for governments, for everybody. So Britain has taken a lot of these choices and has become a uh, a much less uh, friendly place as a result of it. And in in this kind of end of the world scenario, that that would happen. You you know you have to throw some things out of the window. I, I love I love those kind of those unplayed. It's what I'm, I've referred to before as the um, the a few good men question. Where so it's the Jack Nicholson character in that <laughs> who's like you know in you might not like what I've done in ordering this code red, but in you know parts of your mind that you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall, and I did things that you don't agree with, but in a dark part of you, you're glad I'm there. And so, although we don't meet the sort of the leader of Britain 
in the book, his argument is very much put forward. I'm not going to say what he's done, but he's done something which is really, really unpleasant that most right-minded people would think that is a disgrace. His argument would be, yeah, you might you might like to take the moral high ground with me when you're talking about me with your friends, but actually, you know I did the right thing as far as this country's concerned. And so you might not like it, but guess what? I, I'm I'm making the decisions that you don't have the you don't have the courage to be able to take. I, yeah, I think that's pretty much the attitude. And I wanted to keep uh, him, his name's Davenport, kind of off stage. There was an early draft where he he was in it just for one chapter, and um, it was more effective without him. Mm. He's better as a lowering presence, um, not quite fully there, rather than a. Really did you there. did you always think that we were going to? join this world that you've created many decades in was that because because disturbingly the slowing i think starts in may 2020 so yeah, yeah. it's sort of <laughs> yeah, look out you know was there part of you that that wanted to write this as the world stopped or as it was leading up to it is there another version a the, prequel yeah. maybe there, well the I, I started writing with the actual discovery that this process had begun uh there's a real lab in germany called the ring laser gyroscope it's it's buried deep in the black forest and it's literally buried underground embedded in bedrock and the reason for that is that that lab measures the planet's spin um Ring laser gyroscopes are a thing they use on planes to assess um, speed and direction and all of this. And so that's a real place. And I wrote quite a lengthy you know, opening to the novel, which was going to be the discovery in this lab of this uh, process beginning. But it, it was too much of a stretch. You know, I was trying to straddle a gap that was 30 years wide, 40 years wide. And it, it felt like there wouldn't be enough continuity between the two. So I canned it. But I still got it. <laughs> it's there. Who, so who told was that your decision or did did your editor say Oh, it was all way before the editor got to it. Yeah, I really kind of hid myself away, wrote it, gave up twice at various points and then people around me said, "Yeah, you probably carry on with that actually." But it it is far more effective, isn't it, to to be able to write uh, to, the the environment you set this in where everyone is now used to it. Everyone has sort of grown accustomed to the fact that, you know, the sky is how it is and you, you know that there's no darkness. Yeah. That you know, the number of times that you'll talk about someone going into a room and they've just got boards up against the windows because of course, if you've had to deal with this for 30 years, that's just how life is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was, and that was the real the, almost the most fun bit of writing was just thinking of the hundreds of ways that we all take for granted the fact that night follows day, you know, and just thinking, right, you unpick all of those. What do you have? Well, you'll have people digging deeper basements. Well, you'll have people not just closing the curtains, but boarding up the windows. And you'll have all these other adjustments that get made. Yeah. Did, you go, did you go back to any... Uh, movies or any other books that are set. I mean, I was thinking of Mad Max a number of times, just in terms of that. Oh, yeah. I'm not quite sure about the use of the word post-apocalyptic, because apocalyptic is probably fine without the post. But, <laughs> um, you know, people like these kind of books. Yeah, there's a very there's a very interesting bit of the human brain which loves considering the end of the world. I went back... One of the books I read just before... Um, just before I had the idea, was uh, a John Wyndham one, you know, uh, The Crack and Wakes. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I love Triffids too, but The Crack and Wakes is a great example of a story which takes place over about a decade of a very, very slow alien invasion. And he's a master at just charting what would happen, what happened, you know, 
takes a decision and then human nature follows it. Something I was thinking of when I was reading the book was um, was a book I read uh, not long ago, John Lanchester's book, The Wall. Right. And the reason why that sort of sprang to mind is that this, this theme of, of, as far as you know, Britain's concerned, being very isolationist. In other words, obviously, in his situation, it's a, it's a literal wall that they've built around uh, around the coastline. But in here, the environment, the the climate has made Britain this very isolated uh, nation. And I I wonder whether there's something, uh, you know, obviously it'd be very easy to sort of draw a parallel between this and our current political situation. But there's clearly an appetite at the moment for people to read books about how are are we just becoming a little bit too inward looking rather than, you know, what we've been used to for, for decades of being more outward. I think it was definitely part of my considerations. It's probably part of the inspiration as well. But, as you say, I didn't want to write Andy's big Brexit book. you know. Mm, and I yes. don't want... I think it doesn't really work when the allegory is completely nailed on and someone's the author is leading you by the nose and saying, you see, mm. that's about Article 50, or whatever. You know, it's just... Um, it's It then ceases to become a novel and it becomes a bit of a... A kind of a code word, you know, you say, oh, this is that and this is that. Um, so I wanted to write something which takes into account that feeling and that aspect, partly of the British psyche, there is a part, kind of, you know, little bit of the British psyche always, which is about glorious isolation and and follow that as well. Yeah, which explains why the novel is not being published in French uh, so far. So, you know. <laughs> Right. Or German or Italian. Yeah. Is is the is the is your planet a dying planet? Essentially, it's open to debate. No one knows what would happen if this happened. Whether I mean, there's a chance that the atmosphere would just be stripped away by the sun beating down on it in the same spot. That is a possibility, but it's never been done. So there is, you know, there is a little glimmer of hope. I, f- I found plenty of t- towards oh, the end. Yeah, no, I did. I, I, the, the, so I'm not going to obviously talk about the ending, <laughs> but there's there there is there is reason for hope there. And also, I think you know, even during the book, there are you know the the doubt over whether you know if you're on the the cold side, in other words, the part of the Earth that is permanently facing away from the sun, is everything gone there? Is is everyone dead? All living life or everything gone? Maybe not. So I, you know, I even in those circumstances there is cause for hope. I found I found plenty of hope. Oh, good! Yeah, yeah. It sounds such a gloomy book. I know I didn't realize it was <laughs> yeah, so no, gloomy. It's not, it's not the road, is it? Really? <laughs> no, it's, it's not, not exactly. It's two not the road. One for me, one for you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I yeah, I remember going to see that movie. I didn't read the book. Okay. I remember going to see the movie, and because I was doing Five Live at the time, I had to leave like half an hour before the end. And the only hint of any redemption is, of course, like the last five minutes. Up until then, it had been the most miserable oh, horror. I mean, very well acted and all that. Yeah, kind of yeah. yeah. A bit like Marriage Story. Really. <laughs> marriage Story, I really like that. I but mean, well, utterly yeah. miserable. Well, the last scene's, you know, pretty hopeful. Well, depending yes. on your definition of hope, <laughs> really. So, um, Andrew, tell me about the buzz. Tell me what's happening to this book. Go on. The, what's happening to it? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's being published in the USA, uh, which is hugely exciting. And um, it's, I imagine, going to be an enormous movie or, or TV series. Well, as someone... <laughs> you imagine? I oh, mean... yeah. Well, I've got a very good imagination, you know. Yeah. So, Has no, someone said they want to make it into a thing? Yes. A firm uh, in the States have actually said uh, we are very interested in, you know, taking this further and seeing what we could make out of it. They'd love to make a series out of it, and I think that would be... Fabulous fun. I think there are lots more stories within this world that could be told. It does feel, I mean, obviously, it could be a movie, but it does feel like 
a continuing drama series on Netflix or Apple or one of those, which you know can end up as you know if it's if it's terrible, it's six, and then but more, far more <laughs> yeah. likely to be you know here we go with series ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the earth is still <laughs> still not moved. But maybe there's a hint from another white dwarf star coming the other direction, starting it all spinning again. But it must be very exciting. Are you still going to be QIing, uh, scripting and researching? Oh, yes. Yeah, I will. Um, that's kind of, yeah, that's the thing that always keeps going because we just do letters of the alphabet. So you just keep on going with those till you run out of them. And, but, still, and yeah. still fishing. Yep, still fishing, definitely, yeah. Uh, have the rest of them read the book? Um Two of them have. I bet Two they only pretend because, <laughs> to be honest, they're going to be consumed with jealousy, yeah. and they'll yeah, be saying, "I really true. like that yeah. book." And then they'll they'll find a book. They'll go that bit where <laughs> yes. uh, she shrugs and says, "Like hell," and my husband Thomas. That they all say, "I really like that bit," but they won't have read it. They I, won't have read it. I think the danger is when you're giving it to professional fact checkers, and you've got such an outlandish sci-fi-ish premise for it that it's just going to be shot full of holes immediately before even taking off. So I should probably keep it away from a few of them. Yeah. But the but the, the, the fascinating thing about the whole premise is, yes, obviously the science has to be about right. But given that this hasn't happened before, no one really, no one really knows. So you have fantastic artistic license. The great get out of jail free card with this book. Yeah. Yeah. Now you see, if you'd thought of writing a book about the periodic table, you'd have found it's oh, a lot more dear. problematic. <laughs> what? Well, is it? Yes. Okay. I'm just saying. Well, there there were a lot more uh, jeopardy in that, was there? With yeah, the yeah. periodic table, yeah. could that go wrong? Just saying, it's all written down just in saying. physics rather than <laughs> speculation and that kind of stuff. Anyway, Andrew's uh, really good to see you again. Thank you very much, Steve, for coming in. And is book two. Book two is currently uh, in gestation. Yeah. Uh, called You Thought That Was The Last Day. <laughs> the following, yeah, the day. following is it, day. Is it, yeah, yeah. is it similar? Is it part of the story? Is it? I'm actually writing something set uh, completely elsewhere and elsewhere, and it's, it's in another world. It's not in the world of The Last Day, although I do want to come back to this, just not for the second book. Yeah. Andrew Hunter Murray's book is The Last Day, A World Half in Darkness, A Secret She Must Bring to Light. I'm just quoting you there. Well done. Uh, from <laughs> yeah, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much, Steve, for coming in. Thank you.